Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast, episode number 46. My name is Phil and joining me as usual, I've got Rohan. Hey Rohan. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. This episode today is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nebukasa. Easily connect to Google and Amazon Voice Assistants for a small monthly fee that also supports the Home Assistant project. Configuration is via the user interface, so no fiddling with router settings, dynamic DNS or YAML. And if you install the latest release, 0.90, remote access. And here to celebrate the launch of that feature today, we've got Paulus joining us. Hey, Paulus. Hey, guys. How's it going? Yeah, good. Great. Lots of big features in this release. And thanks for making the time to come and talk to us about it. Really appreciate that. I think this is going to be one of those releases where it's before 0.90 and after 0.90 because there's just so much in this release. Yeah. Let's uh, let's jump right into it then. To start with, we've got a camera stream component. So huge feature release in this. Uh, so now you can actually stream cameras to the front end. Uh, if you remember in the past before, it kind of gives you a snapshot, that kind of thing. So now it's actually streaming that, uh, which is pretty awesome. Jason Hunter uh, has done a fantastic job. And uh, he'll hopefully be joining us next episode to, to help us break it down. So Yeah, that's a, a really big feature that I think we need to dedicate some time to that one as well mm-hmm. but i saw paulus you tweeted about it maybe a couple of weeks ago with your little hands in the air jumping up and down so it was really exciting <laughs> to to see that coming yeah it's such a cool feature without going into too much detail but we have a whole streaming framework now and right now we just focus on like cameras that support h264 as a codec but it allows us to make this stream available in the front end and in any device that also supports H.264, which, for example, is any Chromecast device like the Google Home Hub or Chromecast Video. Ah, uh, that's awesome. Very cool. So, But I'm not going to steal any more of Jason's thunder. So <laughs> you can play with it in this release. It's still early. We're going to, the features are going to be expanded in like future releases. And Jason's going to talk about all that stuff. But it's already yeah. very cool. You can already play with it in uh, in this release. Yeah, very neat. Uh, but something you can talk about uh, with us today, and I think is going to be a pretty big step forward in terms of Home Assistant, is that we can now target areas in service calls. So previously you were able to define entities and add them to an area in Home Assistant through the front end. But now using, for example, light.turnoff or uh, automation.turnoff, you can then target an area. And that's available from this release. Yeah, correct. And it, the, it might sound to the listeners like, oh, wow, we're adding this notion of areas and now we're adding areas to service calls. Like, why do we need this? Why can why can we just use groups? Because they have the same functionality. Yep. And the reason for this is that groups do a lot of work under the hood to keep track of the latest state. And especially big groups, they would like calculate all these like, what's the current state of the group all the time, even though nobody was ever using it. And so it just added a lot of overhead. And so by having dedicated areas with a dedicated like constrained subset of features of the group, we're able to have it uh, be way more lightweight. And I think that like right now it's very early on for areas. It's just service calls. There's some permission work going on. Um, and we set it up as the Google Assistant room hint. So when you sync with Google Assistant, we will automatically fill in the the rooms. Ah, okay. Oh, that's neat. But I mean, 
you know, there's no Lovelace card yet. There's a custom card by Thomas, so that one is awesome. But there's no built-in, like, Home Assistant Lovelace uh, card yet for areas. And that's something that, that's going to come. Because it's so cool, you can, like, kind of summarize what anything in the area. Like, hey, what's the temperature in the kitchen? What is the emotion in the kitchen? Is the light on in the kitchen? Which music is playing in the kitchen? Right. We could kind of make, like, a cool card, like, that just shows that. That's very neat. Okay. Mm. Also, uh, something else coming up is the time of flight sensor. Also, spoiler alert, uh, it doesn't actually tell you the time of a flight. Uh, <laughs> so what it does do is it uh, it adds a sensor to Home Assistant, which basically lets you use an invisible laser to measure the distance with pretty accurate, like, millimeter resolution. So that's pretty cool. This is going to be really good for all the DIYs out there that need to do uh, any measurements. So, for example, I saw some examples in the pull request, you know, maybe measuring uh, the distance if a door is closed or not, um, or how much it's opened or closed, like maybe a sliding door. There's also even talk of in the future being able to do things like measuring water tanks and and all that, like how much water is in those levels as well. So if you've got the right hardware, this will be a great little sensor to add in. Exactly. So essentially now that means you can calculate the percentage of something. You can calculate, uh, maybe, well, I mean, percentage might be a little more, a little better than saying, hey, my door is four millimeters open, right? Mm. Uh, <laughs> like, like, so, so, so whatever that means, right? But that's, uh, that's something really interesting, I think. Uh, you know, maybe you want it, you want it cracked open a little bit, but not fully kind of thing. So yeah, it's pretty neat. And some other noteworthy updates. If you're using Home Assistant to manage your Zigbee network, there's now the ability for you to directly bind devices together. So Zigbee has the concept of uh, device binding. For example, uh, Philips Hue uses this with their dimmer switch. You can actually control lights directly through the dimmer switch itself, and it will it will directly bind it with those other lights. So even if Home Assistant's offline, but your Zigbee network is up or you've got your lights on, you can now tell which devices to directly communicate with each other. So that'll make things a lot snappier and faster on your network as well. Yeah. Actually, can I just do a quick shout out to like David Mulcahy? Because he's Mm. been doing a lot of work on the Zigbee integration in like the last few releases. And these are, this is one of the things that he's been working on, but there's also device integration there's all this front-end work going on there's like a new pairing ui gonna be added where like you can live see devices being detected in the ui while you're like running around your house clicking pairing buttons (laughs) and he's just doing an amazing job yeah that's very this is gonna be like we're gonna have like a like an amazing zigbee control panel uh, and integration that will just blow every other solution out of the water that's awesome. Yeah, I think every release for the past few releases, we've just seen something, you know, Zigbee here, Zigbee there. Like, it's just, there's been a lot of work going into this. So, it's it's awesome. Yeah, definitely quite a bit of effort on that front. So, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Also, we spoke quite a bit about PS4 devices last week. Uh, so, now there's support for multiple PS4 devices. So, there you go. And the rain machine irrigation controllers can now be paused and unpaused. If you have a rain machine controller, that might be coming in handy, especially as we get close to summer in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And Paulus, tell us about SmartThings Cloud. Yeah. Yeah, so we had SmartThings, of course, added a couple of releases ago by uh, Andrew Sire. And, you know, he's been extending support for more and more 
uh, the different device types because you know smart things is a full-fledged home automation solution so they have a whole range of device types and you know we have been more and more integrated more and more device types but the only problem is the way the smart things is integrated is that it requires uh, the cloud so it's not a direct connection to the smart things hub but instead it uses this new smart things API and it will actually register your URL of your Home Assistant instance with the SmartThings cloud. And whenever anything happens, they will send a message to us. But of course, this requires you, if you want to use SmartThings, that you need to have your instance exposed to the internet. And mm -hmm. that's not something that we want. And so with this new release, Andrew made an upgrade that if you set up SmartThings and you have an, you're uh, logged in and subscribed to the Nabucasa cloud, it will actually configure SmartThings to use a cloud webhook. And this means that you do not have to have your instance exposed to the internet. It will just go through the cloud connection and it will just work the same as if you would have your instance exposed to the internet. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Because uh, that, that's actually something I, I, I realized. So when I, when I first saw this, I, I, I noticed it when we were looking through the show notes a few episodes ago. And I was like, or I noticed the day before we did that. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is so exciting. And I set it up. And again, one thing I couldn't get it to work and I had to go, oh, okay, let me open up the port. I opened up the port, got it to talk and then actually closed the port again and it still kept working for a little bit. But but then it stopped working after a while. So <laughs> this this is awesome. This is, uh, yeah, as, as somebody that uses uh, the Home Assistant Cloud Services, that's great to hear. And this is actually something we did, it didn't make 090. But this is something that all the other webhook-based integrations, uh, we want to do this as well. So just have it like, hey, if cloud hooks are available, let's use a cloud hook instead of a webhook. And then, you know, the rest will just function exactly the same. The integration doesn't need any changes. That's, that's perfect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Again, from a, from a security perspective as well, from, from a, like my home network perspective, I, I don't, I don't want to have to open things up, right? So... That, that helps quite a bit. So, yeah, that's awesome. So also some uh, breaking changes. Um, so HTTP API password has been deprecated. Yeah, I'll, shall I take this one? Yeah, absolutely. Please. I, just wanna, Please. I just wanna make sure that it is done right. No, uh, because <laughs> for sure. The thing every time we deprecate something, this is like a core feature that we deprecate, right? Most breaking yep. changes actually happen always like random components, like, you know, like we'll hear later, but this is actually a core feature that we're deprecating. And so back in the olden days, before we had the auth system, the way to secure your home assistant installation was using, uh, defining an API password under the HTTP component. This, uh, we've now made enough updates and extended uh, and evolved the authentication system that this is no longer uh, necessary to have this API password. However, we always kept it around kind of as like a fallback for people that haven't updated or people that still have old scripts that they haven't updated. Mm -hmm. um, and with this release, we're doing a little bit of, uh, we, we deprecated it, so we'll show a warning if you still use it. But we're also removing a small part of the fallback. So if you have never touched any of your auth providers, and auth providers is how Home Assistant allows you to authenticate, the default configuration, if it will detect that you have an HTTP uh, API password set, it will actually load up the legacy API auth provider. If you That's the way you have configured it, and most likely most people have it configured like this. Nothing will break in this release. 
it will only be a warning. However, if you did specify auth providers in your uh, Home Assistant configuration.yaml and you still had the API password under the HTTP section, you now have to move it inside the definition for the legacy API password provider. Okay. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So, so it's still, it's still usable. It's just not, uh, not in the config. It's just done in the UI. No, it's still, uh, it's still in the configuration.yaml, but it's under the home assistant section because that's where we define auth providers. And so this is not like configuring or logging. This is not the logging in into home assistant. You can actually configure which authentication services home assistant will use to allow users to authenticate themselves when they're logging in. Right, 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 right. Okay, sorry, yeah. But it, this is not a very, like this is not a broadly used feature. Uh, most people just use the default settings, which are uh, good enough. Like these are good defaults. Yeah, yeah. And then just one more note actually on this is that we actually, when we were talking to people, we realized that some people like, you know, why are you still using API password? And we found one person that said, well, I'm still using API password because I have manually set up the Alexa integration and the documentation actually says use an API password. This is actually ah. no longer needed. So actually Jason Hu, who also made this change, uh, AwareCan on GitHub, he updated documentation because the way our, we use a standardized system for our authentication, it's called OAuth2. Yep. And Alexa and Google both will actually support this. So if you set up a manual installation of either Google and Alexa, you can actually point it at your publicly exposed Home Assistant instance and it allows you to log in with your local user and then Alexa or Google will use your authentication tokens from your local instance to send data back. Hmm. Right, okay, that makes sense. Um, and of course, this is if you use Home Assistant Cloud, then none of this matters, right? You just log in and you're done. Right, right, right. But... So if there are people that are still using the API password, they can still use it. It's not going anywhere. It just needs to be updated in their config on where it's actually defined. It needs to be moved from the Home Assistant uh, spot. It needs to be moved into the auth providers section. Correct. And there's no plans to remove it in the future? Like it, the API password will be available for the time being? So we're going to keep the API password um, available through the legacy API password auth provider. Mm -hmm. And so the difference between supporting API password and this uh, auth provider approach is that the moment you log into Home Assistant, like the, the API password used to be very insecure. You had a single password and it gave you full access to your instance, including like admin tasks and all that stuff. Yep. And so we wanted to move away from that because that was, you know, if you want to integrate with something outside of your Home Assistant instance, you had to give your API password, which means admin access to your instance just to get some data back. And so API password could be pretty much open up access to any URL in our, the Home Assistant API. And with the new approach, API password will allow you to log in as a user, and then your user gets tokens, and these tokens will expire, and they need to be refreshed, and you get like our standard... Uh, secure way of handling your uh, authentication, which is uh, less likely to be uh, compromised. And so right. having just one magical password open up any URL, we're planning to remove that part. But yeah. if you just want to have one password without any usernames, just map to a single user 
to ha- allow access to your Home Assistant instance, that will stick around. Right. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I can see a lot of people getting confused seeing that in the uh, documentation saying, you know, API password's going away. Well, just hang on a second. It's it's okay. Just move it around. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Good that it's still being supported. Also, in a breaking change for this release, the uh, Netatomo, sorry, Netatomo thermostats, yeah, uh, they're being moved to a uh, platform to support multiple devices and multiple homes as well. I believe they had the concept of areas before, um, so you will need to go ahead and just update your config uh, to use that new structure. Yeah, and and on a similar uh, front as well. So uh, the climate no longer will return the boiler status, but instead it'll return the operation mode, which is a little kind of wordy. Phil, I know you read that one. Is that... Yeah, so the climate platforms in Home Assistant are all standardized. So, for example, when talking to Google Home, Google Home can actually report what the climate state is. And not every climate device has a a standard state. For example, the boiler, For ex- in this example, the boiler status might be uh, on heating or something like that, which may not be a standard way yeah. for other climate platforms to communicate. So what this has done, it's moved over to the standard uh, definition of operation modes that Home Assistant have for all the other climate platforms. So this will mean that now you can integrate it with things like third parties, for example, the Amazon Echo or Google Home, but the terminology that's used in Home Assistant may not match the actual device, for example, this boiler uh, on the actual device itself. So just right. it's, it's something that people will have to uh, just watch out for. But you will also have to update your config for that one. Yeah, so what, what actually happened back in the older days of Home Assistant is that we mixed up two terms. There's an operation mode and there's an operating mode. And mm-hmm. an operation mode can be, for example, say heat. And then you can say, for example, 21 Celsius. And if the temperature is less than 21 Celsius, it will actually you know, activate the heating to heat up your house. But if it's above 21 Celsius, it would not be heating, it would be idle. And so operating mode actually describes, are we heating or are we idle? Well, operation mode is heat. Right, yep. Got it. And we mixed this up in a couple of integrations. And so NetAdmo was one of those. And this has been uh, fixed. The boiler status is actually is not completely gone. It's still available as an attribute on the climate entity. Okay, good. Okay, okay. So it's it's still, it's, it's not that it's it's out completely, so. Yeah. Uh, Nanoleaf Aura, which are those cool, funky IoT lights that you can stick up on your wall, that's mm-hmm. uh, been completely renamed to the new Nanoleaf uh, component or platform. So if you're using that, you will have to go ahead and just uh, do a find replace and move everything just over to Nanoleaf. I'm assuming that in the future yeah. there might be different devices that are going to come out you know, under that platform. So that's a, a good move. Yeah, you just have to backspace seven times. Problem <laughs> solved. Uh, <laughs> so also Fire TV has now been renamed to Android TV. So I guess this one makes sense because Fire TV is based on an Android OS. So just to kind of keep everything similar. And uh, that way it's kind of having almost near duplicate integrations kind of thing. It makes sense to just to have it has one single platform as Android TV. So makes sense there. Yeah. And so yeah, there was two really huge features that are coming out in Home Assistant uh, 090. And mm-hmm. Paulus, I think we've already touched on it briefly today, but uh, Home Assistant Remote Access 
is an amazing feature and I think this is uh, one that's going to be, you know, something that's really going to push the project forward and also be a defining point, you know, before 0.90 you didn't have uh, remote access and now after 0.90 you're going to have cloud access and it's just going to open up a whole new bunch of opportunities. So congratulations on the launch of this. So how how does it work and and what do you foresee uh, it being used for? Yeah, uh, awesome. Thank you. It's uh, It's been long in the making. We've been exploring different approaches and we finally settled on the current approach for remote access. And I first of all, I want to describe how the user uh, experiences. And the goal of the remote access is that we want to offer people that are not at home access to their home automation, home assistant instance, and do it in such a way that they don't have to configure anything locally and do it in such a way that Home Assistant Cloud cannot look at the data that is being sent home. And so it's fully encrypted from the person's phone or laptop or whatever he's doing into Home Assistant, uh, the local instance. And so that's exactly how it works. So right now, if you upgrade to 0.90, you're logged in uh, into Home Assistant Cloud, it will automatically generate a SSL certificate for you uh, with Let's Encrypt. Certificate lives, is created locally, is uh, authorized with Let's Encrypt directly through a DNS challenge. And this way, only your local instance will have access to this certificate. And then what happens is that your instance can be connected and be available for remote access, uh, which happens that you can, uh, this will be a specific subdomain under the ui.nabu.casa domain. And if your instance is connected, you can just hit that URL from your phone or from uh, a mobile app or from your laptop. The URL is kind of long and complicated. So if you forget about it, um, you can always go to remote.nabucasa.com, log in and it will forward your instance. But we also realize that people don't always want to have their instance, like, you know, allow even remote connections in. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually disable the remote connection. And then if you want, you can uh, actually use service calls. So you can even automate it. So you can be like, hey, somebody is leaving the house. Let's allow remote connections to come in. Ah, nice. That's very cool. Okay. Yeah. And if you are finding yourself outside of the house and you forgot to allow remote connections in, you can log into remote.nabucasa.com. And you can actually request your instance to become available online. And then the moment your instance becomes available online and you uh, navigate to, you know, access your instance, what actually happens is that all the the data is encrypted with a certificate and the encrypted data is sent through the Home Assistant Cloud to your local instance. And only at your local instance is it decrypted uh, because only the local instance knows the certificate. Um, and so Home Assistant Cloud is really just passing on encrypted bytes uh, that we cannot read. And then because we have this encrypted connection set up, users will be able to, they will have to log in into uh, their own local instance with their own local authentication. So there's no Nabucasa account will grant you full access into your instance. Instead, right. it's you just log in as you would log in locally. You would log in remotely. And because this is also all server, you know, over HTTPS, you will have all the benefits of the Home Assistant front end, which can do a lot of aggressive caching. Um, and so 
the first launch might be a little slow, but after that, it's going to be super fast, just as the normal experience is with the Home Assistant front end. And then everything just works. It's like your full instance. So any custom Lovelace card will work. Any custom background will work. The video stream feature, it might not be fast enough because right now the video streaming doesn't make the video smaller. It's like the full feed that comes from your camera will be blasted towards your phone, for example. Yep. Um, and so mm-hmm. most of the times it's actually the local upload in homes that is not able to fully deal with it. And that's actually, you know, that's, Kind of the gist of uh, Home Assistant Remote Access. So, you mentioned before that it uses a Let's Encrypt certificate. So, when you enable it, it will go out. It'll go out and get its uh, Let's Encrypt certificate. Previously, if you were doing this yourself, you would have to expose ports on your router and then run a like certificate bot to go out and let uh, Let's Encrypt come back and look through your router and get to your instance to say, yes, this is the, the right uh, IP address. I can access the, the certificate engine here. Does Home Assistant require any uh, users to open up ports on their router to allow remote access to go and get those certificates from Let's Encrypt? No, not at all. And the reason this is not necessary, and this is actually also not necessary with the normal Let's Encrypt flow anymore, because the, they used to have this flow where indeed you have to open port 443 and port 80, mm-hmm. and then they will yeah. make two requests, make sure you own that server, and it's yours. And at some point they were like, well, wait a second, instead of proving that you own the server behind the domain name, since the SSL certificate is for a domain name and not for like the server itself, they allowed something what's called the DNS1 challenge. And so you would write a text record to the DNS records of that subdomain to prove that you own that subdomain. And then you would make a request to Let's Encrypt. Hey, check my DNS records. Let's Encrypt would check the DNS records and then your API call would get back uh, the authorized certificate. Yeah, and this is how Home Assistant Cloud does it as well. So we will we will do the interaction for you with Let's Encrypt. We will write the text records and we will keep it up to date as well. So we will automatically refresh your uh, certificates. And that's it. It just... It just works like that. That is so handy. Yeah, that's that's useful. It's that 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 actually used to be one of my biggest pains. Is is exactly what you said because I'd have to because I have I have an instance of nginx that basically front ends all of my stuff. So you used to have to shut that down, do the let's encrypt thing, turn it back on, and so on and so forth. Right. So I actually had, I scripted that so it, it would do that, but it's just it's just it's another thing to do, right? So it's another thing that can break too. Oh, totally, totally, and and yes, I've I've had that <laughs> break as well. So yeah. it's yeah, so so yeah, this is definitely definitely useful. So the I, I totally think the remote access feature is is not only a no brainer. It's it's amazing that you know you've you've it's we it's here and and I'm really excited for it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I haven't mentioned like the final piece of the puzzle yet because, you know, we talk about encryption, we talk about not opening ports. So we are able to get a certificate with DNS, but, you know, how do we get data between a browser 
and Home Assistant without opening anything, any ports on the router or reconfiguring your local network. And the way we do this, and I say we, but I have to give all credit to uh, Pascal. Like he has been full-time employed for Nabucasa since the beginning of February, end of January. And, you know, he, this is what he has been working on pretty much like besides like maintaining SIO, uh, this is what he's been working on. It was also his idea. But the way it works is that there are different levels. Like we wrote a proxy, obviously, because, you know, that's how you get data between two points with like a middleman, like passing it on. But there's different levels of having a proxy. So at a very high level, there's like a remote proxy, which HTTP requests come in. You see the HTTP requests and you route them to like a right instance. However, that's not something we can do because everything's encrypted. So we don't know data that's coming in. We don't know where this is going to. However, right. there's a encryption uh, is done. The data is encrypted with like TLS encryption. And part of the TLS handshake, it's getting a bit technical now, sorry guys, is a <laughs> SNI okay. uh, extension. And this extension will allow, is pretty much a bit of metadata that is part of this um, uh, handshake that will tell you for which host it is uh, targeted. And right. so we will read this metadata and we will route the correct bytes to the correct instance. And we do this at a TCP level. So where most proxies will run on the HTTP level, we are actually one level lower with TCP. And so this also means that we're actually not limited to HTTP 1.1. We can do HTTP 2.0 as well, for example, because it's all TCP. Anything that is TCP, we can now route between your home assistant and uh, if you're remote, any setup, like your browser, your phone, whatever. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, because that because then that now really opens up the possibilities for a lot more things, uh, even past like you said, past kind of the HTTP layer, right? Yeah. So as long as it is like okay. encrypted, right? Because like we yeah, we yeah. need that encryption to do the routing. Plus, we don't want any decrypted data routing going through our data, through our servers. We want to have everything encrypted or at least signed that it is tamper proof. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so with all of this stuff, then, Paulus, is it is it like behind all this stuff? Is it is it open source or? Yeah, that's uh, it is actually this TCP proxy idea is not new. There's like other uh, services that do a similar that offer these kind of services. Um, not all the integration with like SSL, but just like a TCP proxy idea. However, we had a few requirements. One of the requirements was um, it needs to run in Python. Right, we are building Home Assistant yep. Cloud for Home Assistant. If we just wanted to do something that runs as a HSIO add-on, it would have been a lot easier. But we wanna, we don't wanna like discard like the people that don't use HSIO. Right. And so we build as a Python client, and we also, and so it's a client-server TCP multiplexer, and this is open source. So this is uh, this package is available on uh, on GitHub.com/slash/nabukasa. And you can see exactly how, you know, the, it explains the protocol that we use under the hood to route the connections and the data back and forth. And then the other part of the, that's open source is uh, the integration of that remote connection, how it hits like our uh, inside home assistant, how that also integra- integrated is also open source. Hmm. Oh, awesome. That is very cool. Yeah, that's, that's neat. I'm, I'm 
I just opened up your GitHub right now, as you said. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm, I'm already in this. This is, this is the kind of stuff I love personally. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So if people want to see more technical details, more documentation about like how it kind of works, we actually also wrote some documentation and that's also on the GitHub repo. Very cool. Yes. So if someone has the cloud subscription and they enable remote access and they're using Hassio, will they have access to also remotely access any of their Hassio add-ons? So if I'm running the Node-RED add-on, could I then start you know, accessing my Node-RED uh, add-on and adjusting my flows and all that from there? So right now we do not support that. And mm-hmm. the reason for this is that we want to start as small as possible, as uh, which is already... It's, it's, it's already quite a big operation to like, there's a lot of moving pieces. And so right now, Hasayo add-ons are not accessible. We've been thinking about like, if we want to do it and we don't know yet what the answer is for that and, or how, because of the way it all works, it's a pretty tight knit system. Um, so both things we'll have to see, we'll have to, pretty much I think we have to see how this feature is received, what the use mm. cases are and you know, see what we're going there from uh, from there on. Yeah, and and I guess to some extent that would have to be a add-on by add-on kind of decision. Just to some extent, right? Like, well, yeah, I mean, some add-ons are can make a lot of changes to your home network, right? Like if you have configurator access or anything. Yeah, so, yeah. Or terminal. Yeah, exactly. So. And then, and then one of the other one of the other big things uh, with this release as well, and 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 Paulus, we're going to come back to you is is it's and and one of my favorite topics as part of Home Assistant is is user permissions, right? So starting point uh, nine zero, there's uh, at least a basic level of of interface restrictions based on user permissions. So basically, uh, you know, in, in the enterprise world, we kind of call it role based access control, right? So that that same kind of idea, like like. Can can you can you dig into that one a little bit? Yeah. Um, so user permissions is a feature that I started on the moment we shipped authentication. So yeah. user permissions actually has been piece by piece being added to Home Assistant since last summer, and pretty much during this release cycle, I was thinking about all the work that was left to be done from based on like my vision of how I wanted it to work, and I realized that. I, we might have like you know missed the MVP point by uh, far, and so yeah. I s- decided to like scale back our goals of what we wanted to do. And so instead of allowing custom groups, we're only going to have system groups, and we're actually going to only have two system groups. And these system groups have like a fixed set of permissions. One is the administrator group, and one is the users group. And it's not possible to customize what these groups can access. That's all hard coded. And the way it works is that any administrative task, you have to be in the admin group. As a user, you can have access to all entities. You can interact with Lovelace. You can see the map. You can see the history. You can see the logbook. But you cannot change names, set up a Philips U, or delete something, restart Home Assistant. However, saying this, I have to do a big asterisk, is that (laughs) this is the vision. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, the thing is, is that we have a lot of APIs in Home Assistant because a lot of integrations come with their own APIs, services, WebSocket APIs, uh, REST APIs. And we haven't gone through every API endpoint yet 
to make sure that we validate that you're in the admin group before doing an administrative task. And so, although this feature is not ready for prime time yet, we did the one thing that probably 95% of the people really want, which is we will hide all the links to the administrative stuff in the front end if you're part of the users group. Right. And so this means you cannot see the configuration panel. If you go to the more info page of a entity, you will not see the settings icon in the top right. All the developer tools in the bottom left are also hidden in the sidebar. And sure, if these people would get their API access token, they could still, you know, probably find some API endpoints that are not restricted yet. So it's still, uh, it's not considered, I would not say it's a security feature right now. It's more a user interface setup feature. Right. Right. Prevent prevent your kids from pressing the wrong things or, or, or what have you, right? Yeah. Okay. This will be really good for those users that have uh, tablets in the home and they want to, you know, just have them on the wall, but they don't necessarily want to give full access to home assistant. So, yeah. yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's another great use case, actually. And so in the, fe- in the future where we want to go and what my original vision was is that you, our permission system allows people to define... Uh, and policy and this policy you can define which entities can be uh, read so which which entities can I see the state which entities can I control so which entities can I like turn on or turn off and which entities can I edit like rename uh, these kind of things and you can define this in home assistant on an entity ID level on a device ID level so if there's like multiple entities related to one device you can also just say this device you have access to, or at an area level. So you can say, hey, any, let this user group access any entity that is related to any device that is placed in the living room area, for example. And this kind of feature actually works. Like if you, if you want to define your custom group, I actually just wrote a blog post on the developer blog of Home Assistant about how you can like, hack your own core files to define your own custom group. Yeah. However, it's not advised to do so because our front end does not deal with it at all. So sure, it will, if you don't have access to certain entities, it will not show them. But if you have Lovelace <laughs> set up, you get these like yellow boxes being like, you don't, this yeah. entity doesn't exist. And of course, if you try, we don't, if you don't have access to turn a device on and off, we shouldn't even give you the toggle, but Lovelace doesn't know either. So it will just show you the toggle it just won't work. Right. Also, it just sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because like, if you have all this, then you kind of also want to have like, you know, multiple Lovelace UIs, right? Like, because there's multiple yeah. permission sets. And then, so it just went on and on and on. That's why I was like, wait a second. If we don't redefine our goals we're never going to ship anything with permissions and so yeah just a system just an admin group just a users group you cannot change how the groups behave you can just change who is part of which group that's going to be like the, the the mvp for now fair okay yeah i think that's very fair all right and well i mean they are two amazing features that i think are really going to yeah. Add time assistant. And I'm guessing over the next few releases, user permissions will be fleshed out more. Probably will. So in my blog post, I announced like, hey, we need your help. Please go through 
your own custom components or go through the components that you maintain within Home Assistant and make sure that they satisfy uh, the permission checks and then help us out. Like go through the Home Assistant code base and make sure, let's make sure that we have all our APIs checked properly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that once we have done that, then we can actually tell people like, hey, the user group is a security feature. Right. So, so then, then second question or follow-up question then for that is, so let's say, let's say I'm in there, I do this, I check a component. How am I getting that back to you? Uh, do I ping you or is there something I do in GitHub and say, Hey, I've checked this for API. Like what's, what's the, well, that's actually a very good question. Cause so <laughs> I put up the blog post and we don't really have anyone that's currently like leading this effort or like organizing this effort. Like as in like keeping track of what has been checked, what has not been checked. Yeah. Um, we, we should. And so if you want to volunteer, let me know. Or as most things in Home Assistant go, just start doing it. And then you are the one that does it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. You, you got, you volunteered yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if somebody makes a list then you know, we have a list. It, it just, you know, there's a lot of uh, integrations. And so it's just going to be a lot of like checking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So something we decided to do a little bit differently in this episode, we put some questions, uh, we put a question out on Twitter. You know, if you had anything you'd like to ask Paul, let us know and we, we might ask him. And, and so we've got a, a few tweets that came back at us and Paul's, we're going to really put you under the, the spotlight here and, and, and basically <laughs> grill you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, 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 we're not grilling you. The, the home assistant committee is grilling you. Um, but, uh, first of all, Bob and Greg just wanted to say thank you. They had some nice words for you on 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 Twitter. But Grayson uh, asked, uh, thinking about the future of Home Assistant, and if I'm correct, 0.99 will be out on July 24th, as long as the two-week uh, release pattern continues. After 0.99, will there be a 0.100 or a 1.0 on August 7th? <laughs> so... I don't want to, like, if, if we would go from 0.99 to 1.0, then the version number was moot. Like, it was just, uh, you know, then it's just a decimal all the, all the, all along. So I don't think that we should aim for being 1.0 on August 7, but I do think that we're pretty close to a 1.0. I think, you know, I mentioned this in uh, the State of the Union last year and like, what do we want to have for 1.0 and what is, like, a 1.0 release worthy uh, release. And the things that we want to have is that we want to be able to have a subset of Home Assistant that is configurable purely through the user interface. No configuration.yaml needed. And this user interface group, like you can, you should be able to like have a basic mode for Home Assistant, so to say. And in this mm-hmm. basic mode, you should be able to use a subset of Home Assistant. You won't have access to all the advanced features, right? But just a subset, and that should just work. And if that, if we can get to a place where we have such a place where it just works, that we can like, you know, for example, I want to have a Home Assistant installation in my parents' house. Well, if I can have, you know, I still want to maybe give them admin access and like configure a place, but they should never ever have to open a terminal and go to configuration.yaml. And so if, that, if we can get to that point, then I think that's that's 1.0 worthy. That's like, hey, we actually have achieved something right. and we are able to get this to gen- general user base. 
And then, of course, we have all the advanced stuff. We have Node-RED integration. We have, you know, packages and whatever cool stuff people do uh, with Home Assistant. And that's still that's not going to go away. That's You know, it will still be available. It will just not be available to the users that have, like, the basic mode of Home Assistant. Right, right. And and at that point, I would assume that way, again, there's no dealing with Linux. There's no dealing with any of that stuff. It's just straight up yeah. UI. So, yeah. And so this yeah. would like you know, these people just update through like Hasio and just yeah. kind of move forward with that. And we are very very close to this point. I think the biggest yeah. there's like there's two changes uh, like there's actually one core change that we still have to make, and that's uh, that the core configuration right now the time zone the location and the name are all hard coded in configuration of YAML. And once we extract that out so that you can still go through configuration of YAML and set the values, but you can also choose to configure it during the onboarding, that's pretty much the final change we need to make in the core. And after that, it's just polishing up the user experience, which also has a lot of polishing up to do. But yeah. Mm. So I think that basically answers uh, another tweet that came from Greg, and he said, you know, is the long-term vision to move away from editing YAML completely, and and if not, there will need to be some UX improvements like auto-checking and error-highlighting the YAML. Mm-hmm. Well, the, so UI, actually, so. yeah, on, uh, on that note, the best way that we can, as a community, can make YAML editing easier is by building what's called a language server. And so a language server is what powers any language integration in IDEs. For example, Visual Studio or Atom or Sublime Text, they all communicate with a language server. And there's, um, I was put out a tweet, like I was talking with, the, I was talking with Frank about this because we've been like, you know, discussing this, like, man, somebody should really build this. And then we put out this tweet of like, hey, can somebody build like a language server? And we put it out months ago and, Nothing really happened. And then Max, he was on the podcast, um, which made the Hash CLI. He was actually initially planning to build a language server, but then pivoted to build a CLI. And so we put out the tweet again uh, last week. And actually somebody responded saying they're interested. So we'll see where this goes. But the idea that we want to have with a language server is that you can have Visual Studio Code open or you can have a web version of Visual Studio Code open even, and it will talk to this language server. This language server will talk to your Home Assistant instance, and so it can actually autocomplete your real entity IDs, right? Like Very it has cool. actually access to everything in your system. It knows which services are there. It can give you the service description when you write services. There's a lot of cool stuff that we can do, but at the end of the day, I mean, somebody has to build it. Right. And so we have one person who's going to like look into it. So... That's uh, we'll see where it, where it goes. I think if we have a foundation in place, getting other people to contribute it is always easier. It's the initial foundation that is a bit. I mean, it's not tricky, but it's just a bit more work uh, with less reward mm-hmm. because it's just a foundation. So we'll get there and we'll have better YAML integration. Yeah, yeah. And also talking about you know moving close to release one hundred and is there any celebration plans if you ever <laughs> hit that milestone or you're just going to wait for a 1.0 to land and then have a big celebration for that? I have some ideas, but I don't really want to spoil them yet. Ah, <laughs> okay, mystery. I like cool. it. Okay, good. Magnus wants to know, um, are there any plans for a new Z-Wave backend? Whew. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a that's a pretty loaded yeah. question there. So no, so we, <laughs> I did my I did a bunch of research on Z Wave, and the idea was like, hey, we want to see can, what is the current Z Wave implementation good enough? What do we want to like? It, the, the, there's a lot of the like the current we currently use Open Z Wave. And OpenZWave started out as a reverse engineered mm-hmm. approach to the serial protocol of the Z-Wave sticks. And nowadays the, the spec is available. And they've been, you know, they, it's written in C++ and it powers a lot of Z-Wave integrations like for a lot of open source home automation hubs. The And I reached out to the developer on the mailing list saying like, hey, we have budget available. Can we like, you know, what do you need? And the answer of this, there's actually, uh, I was like, what do you need? Uh, because there's a bunch of features that are partially done in the development branch and which is kind of blocking doing a new release. And one of the features that is in the development branch that people really like is the uh, garage door and I think yep. central mm. scene. Don't, I, it's a bit uh, fuzzy right now, but those are the two features that are actually merged or partial merged inside uh, the dev branch, but because the dev branch has other features that are partially implemented, no release is possible right now. And so the main developer, um, Fish Waldo, is his GitHub handle. He came back and he said, the biggest problem he has right now is that he doesn't have enough time. So, yeah. which is, you know, the common story with a lot of us. It's also because these features are partially built, it's not really possible to just say, like, let's remove them again or like... And so... With the current speed of development, we don't expect to see a new Open Z Wave release like this year. And there hasn't been one last year either, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I also explored like, do we want to have a new Z Wave backend? And so, you know, we found some like partial Rust implementations, uh, Python implementation, but none of them are as full fledged as uh, Open Z Wave. And none of them have an active developer community. Um, and so I also reached out to Mozilla because they do, uh, Mozilla builds an IoT gateway as well. And like, hey, what are you guys doing? And I was talking to their product manager and she was telling me that they actually, because of the way OpenZWave works right now, actually decided to focus more on Zigbee. Um, so that's what they are doing right now. So also they actually just, wrap open z-wave right now and just bundle it as is um so yeah is there going to be a new z-wave backend the biggest challenge is just like finding people to do it right now yeah and yeah the best thing is if we would get a c++ developer that's like really solid and then there's actually one c++ developer i know that's really solid which is pascal but he is completely swamped already with like so many <laughs> other things like hasio and stuff so that's not gonna happen uh anytime soon so yeah i think that right now the state of z-wave is kind of like hanging out there this and you know the, the the other problem that we're having right now is that there is no active core developer uh in home assistant that's you know improving z-wave or like you know making things more accessible in the front end Mm-hmm. Like we have some people that have like did it in the past um, and, you know, people come and go and they're like a bit less active now. Um, and so, you know, this like, like with Zigbee where we talked about earlier, like, you know, that is just flying right now and just like improves mm-hmm. every release. So, 
yeah, that's like Z-Wave has like a lack of resources on the Home Assistant side and on like the Open Z-Wave side. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. A few people also asked, and this seems to be a recurring theme, not only uh, on Twitter, <laughs> but I've also noticed it in uh, every other week on, on Reddit as well. Is there ever going to be an official Home Assistant Android app? Well, so in the last release, we introduced a new mobile app component. And this mobile app component is actually a foundation to integrate any mobile app. And the idea is that the way we have the iOS app, you know, the iOS app has a component, so it has a tighter integration with Home Assistant than just talking to the APIs. And we wanted to make this available to any app because it's, of course, we can build uh, all the apps, but we were like, you know, there's so many apps out there right now and they don't have a solid integration. And so Robbie, which is also the developer of the iOS app or one of the developers and also the developer of the iOS component, he actually is putting a lot of effort in both last release and this release to make the mobile app experience super solid. And it's going to be all powered by webhooks or cloud hooks if uh, a user is subscribed to Home Assistant Cloud. And this will allow any mobile app, including the currently available Android apps and like the currently available iOS apps, which is like not only the official one, which is part of the Home Assistant organization, but also created by other people to actually very tightly integrate with Home Assistant have a purely UI-based setup with like login through the authentication system, get authentication tokens, get a URL to interact with Home Assistant, and you know, off you go. And so if there's gonna be an Android app, is that the official answer is that it's a lot more likely now, given that like it's easier, there's less work for anyone to contribute an, uh, an Android app. Hmm. However, the, the the issue is resources. Like, how are we gonna get a Android app, you know, contributed to Home Assistant? Because right now we have Android apps, and some of them are open source, and so we could just say, hey, let's put it in the org, and this is the official one. However, if there's yeah. no developer attached to it, then it's more like an open source, where like you know we put it out there and we just <laughs> hope somebody will fix it for us. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, because if we so this is like we need an active developer and these developers need to have, you know, an incentive to make it better. And so I don't know if there's going to be an official Android app. I mean, there's definitely going to be better integrated Android apps. Um, but we've also actually been talking to some of the authors of these apps now to get them, you know, make them aware of the mobile app component and see if they have any issues or feature requests. So the, that was a very long answer. But the, <laughs> the TLDR is maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing, you know, even uh, when uh, Robbie started the iOS app, that wasn't an official, you know, Home Assistant app for iOS. It, it sort of uh, became official when, once it was made part of the, the GitHub repo. If someone's listening today and they're an Android app developer, what are the requirements that they would and if they wanted to, you know, become the champion of an official Android app, what are the requirements? Does the does the app have to be uh, already available? Does it have to be users using it? Does it have to be open source? You know, are there requirements in, in that sense? In that sense, before you know, Home Assistant will take a look at integrating or you know, making it an, an app that's out there official. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this is actually a question I've been getting off 
various Android app developers over the years as well. And, you know, the, the, this, the thing to make it official is to contribute the source code to the Home Assistant organization, which means that it falls under the Home Assistant Code of Conduct, for example. And it means that, you know, there's, if Home Assistant has like certain things, like, you know, for example, it should use the mobile app component because that's the way Home Assistant wants to integrate um, with mobile apps moving forward. And so the first step is to build an app. And I actually put out a pretty detailed uh, mobile app integration guide. It's part of the developer docs. If you go to the other section, it explains exactly how to interact with the mobile app component, how to do authentication, how to do web view. If you want to have a, a web view base UI, which is obviously MVP for any mobile app, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then to make it official with Home Assistant, I think you know the requirements are not just source code wise of like feature wise. I think you're right, like community wise is very important. So it needs to have a developer that's active on Discord, right? Like we can't just have a developer drop the code and just disappear. Mm. We want to have users that are using it and like, you know, it should work, so to say. And I mean, that, that's, that's the requirements. And, you know, then what means to contribute to Home Assistant is that most likely it will be published on the App Store under the Home Assistant name. And then, of course, the developers get like push access to it. And that way, uh, you know, we can control the translations, the descriptions, the screenshots, and these kind of things. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the gist of like the requirements. And what happens just a lot of times is that these Android developers, it's so easy to distribute apps from mobile platforms and monetize it, is that you see a lot of these developers uh, deciding to put uh, an ad-supported version and like a pro version to remove the ads. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, that's I mean, uh, you see that uh, there's a couple of these apps out there. And that's not always a bad thing. I think that, like, if you pay one time a $3 fee for an app, I think that's a very reasonable uh, thing when it comes to, like, you know, paying for software. In fact, I think it's a bit on the low end being a software developer myself. But it does give an incentive to the author also to, you know, invest more of her time to build it out into like a great app. So I'm looking into like an official home assistant Android app, but I don't think, I'm not sure if it will happen, how it will happen. And if it will be a better experience than we can offer like any of the third party apps, because if we all use the same backend, there's not going to be something that might jump out that the open source one does that maybe another paid app wouldn't do. Mm, Right. Yeah. Fair. All right. Uh, so Kevin asks, uh, and by the way, just complete side note, he's got the best Twitter handle, Chunk, uh, <laughs> which is which is awesome. So kudos to you, Kevin, for that one. Uh, but at what point? At what point will Home Assistant uh, outgrow the Raspberry Pi as a platform? And and has it already happened? That's actually a very good question. So I think if we look at like it, it really depends on the use case. So if you mm-hmm. look at just running Home Assistant. I don't think we will ever outgrow the Raspberry Pi as a platform because the Raspberry Pi as a platform itself is growing in a faster pace with like CPU uh, like with more CPU, more yeah. memory per generation than we are consuming, right? And so if you look at the Raspberry Pi 3 now, it's like super powerful. And if we ever get to a Raspberry Pi 4, like if they would like, I don't know, increase like 50% or 100% power, 
it, you know, home assistant, that's more than home assistant needs. However, what is happening is that, you know, we have, uh, SAO has this thing called add-ons and people can install add-ons and add-ons are full applications that are like, you know, the size of home assistant, if not bigger. Um, and these right. applications, at some point, yes, you can grind your pie to a halt. If you install like 20 add-ons and, you know, it's very appealing to do because, you know, Frank, just every week or two weeks, there's this new cool add-on and you kind of <laughs> want to try it out and like, sure, I'll keep it running. Yeah, and yeah. At some point, yeah, your pie will, you know, lack the resources. And if you're interested in installing a lot of add-ons, I would suggest you upgrade to like an Intel NUC, for example. Um, mm-hmm. We're also, uh, Pascal's also adding support for a few more ARM-based boards that are very powerful. So there's options to like, you know, get more horsepower today if the Raspberry Pi is not enough. But I think if you just want to run Home Assistant, I think a Raspberry Pi will be enough. Okay. And Jason, I said, uh, lots of complaints with recent releases breaking components, which uh, haven't been noted in the release notes. And it seems the transition away from the YAML configuration to a stored managed config isn't so straightforward. Is the situation going to get worse before it gets better? So I think that we have been through the, the like the, the roughest amount of breaking changes right now. And I think what has happened, which, so most of the breaking changes that happen in Home Assistant are not changes in the core. They are changes in like, for example, you saw like the NetAtmo has like a change this release. Right. However, we've been doing a migration of how we organize our files. And the way we organize our files is that it used to be an integration, which, for example, Philips U or Nest would, you know, plug into different parts of Home Assistant, which we call components, with, uh, and these plugs will be called platforms. And so one integration would have, for example, Nest would have its own component to manage the authentication and would have a platform for the, uh, the thermostat, have a platform for sensors. And all these files were kind of distributed throughout Home Assistant. And now we've been doing a migration where we are creating like all files related to Nest are in a single folder. And we are doing like, we've been doing this, we did a lot of moving around already and we're hoping we can wrap it all up by 0.91 with like uh, moving things around. However, the way we already made some changes to the loading mechanism, so it looks like it's already in the new format, so there shouldn't be any breaking changes anymore. But the idea what we want to do, and this is like really long term, so don't like get your hopes up high, but we want to get integrations to be individually distributable. So there's no reason that if a Nest has a bug fix that we should do a Home Assistant release. We should be able to just say, hey, here's a new version of the Nest integration. We should be able to say, I want to roll back a version of Nest, but I still want to keep the latest Home Assistant features. And mm. to get there, you know, we need to have a single folder that we can just, you know, swap out. We need to have, you know, more, more things like set in stone of what an integration, how it should look file structure wise, what kind of things it can expose, how it integrates with different parts of the system. And so kind of what we're doing now is we're taking the first very small step and it is like, hey, let's at least get all the files most of the files into like their own folders for each integration. There's still some pieces around discovery and config entries, and that's how you can like configure through the user interface that are still a bit entangled, part of the core. And so we need to untangle that. 
And eventually, one day, we will have individually you know, packaged components. And another very nice thing of this would be that it would offload actually some work on the core developers. Because right now, we have a single GitHub repository with all the, you know, all the integrations. And these are over a thousand integrations. And what happens is that every time there's a change to one of these integrations about how they tie into Home Assistant, uh, because protocol uh, code is all kept outside of Home Assistant, but the integration into Home Assistant is of course part of Home Assistant. And it means that any change to any integration has to be reviewed by the core developers of Home Assistant. Um, and you know, this team is like, there is a lot of people that help with the reviews, but there's a lot more people working on integrations. And so what starts happening is that we have a backlog. I think right now there's 170 open contributions waiting for a review from like the core developers. And we wanna, if we are able to make it very easy to redistribute integrations, we can start you know, allowing people, just like we do with HASIO add-ons, where like Frank maintains a bunch of stuff and it's all under his uh, banner and his release cycle and his bug fixes. You know, maybe someone else will step up and he will release like a bunch of integrations for, you know, some integration that doesn't have to be part of Home Assistant, doesn't have to fall, go through review with the core developers of Home Assistant, but just will work independently. Right. So that sounds like a pretty fundamental way to changing the way you're seeing components interact with Home Assistant right now, I guess. A home assistant analogy could be that, you know, right now there are HASIO add-ons that you can install. Eventually, instead of having a uh, home assistant ship with every single component as part of its core library, you might be able to have a, an integration uh, add-on store that, you know, if you want to enable Philips Hue, you download the Philips Hue package. And if you want to enable uh, LifeX, you download the LifeX package. And then that brings in it all those core components that tells home assistant, I'm a light, I can interact this way rather than everyone having to download every single thousand components that Home Assistant ships with. Exactly. Right. Especially if you're, if you're a very tiny deployment that uses like six, right? Yeah. Like, and we can even yeah. like automate parts of it. We're like, hey, we discovered Philips U on your network. We will pull in the Philips U integration for you. But yeah, we, mm-hmm. will, we will get more to like, you know, how we have the HASIO add-on store, but then for integrations. However, and I just want to just, this is like, we're not even close to this, right? Like, we are only moving yeah. files around right now. <laughs> but we have... Yeah. Fair. To tie the loop yeah. back, do you see that, you know, component structure where, you know, Home Assistant, where you can just download a component and update it individually? Do you, do you see that being part of a Home Assistant 1.0 uh, release? Or do <laughs> you say that not. that will be after 1.0? After. Yeah, if that's going to be part of Home Assistant, I mean, this is so much, like, this requires a lot of, like, you know, effort about how we manage our files and integrations and stuff. I don't see this happening this year, easily. Yep. Maybe not even next year. I'll set it for 2.0. How's that? (laughs) Let's do that. (laughs) On your behalf, Paulus. (laughs) Yeah. So... Uh, last one, uh, we've got uh, Pete that asks, are there any plans to support multiple YAML files for Lovelace? So it's actually a kind of neat use case where it's like, let's say we have one type of YAML file for PC, one for a wall display, and one for phones. I mean, that would be nice, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, <laughs> there's no... 
I mean, what is the plan, right? Like, we thought about it, but there's no, you know, person committed to it, like, hey, I'm going to make this happen. And I think part of it is also is that it's like, how are we going to, like, you know, there's a lot of questions around it. Like, is this going to be part of, like, a permission system? Is it going to be user-based? Is it going to be, going to have a user have multiple YAMLs, like, multiple, like, Lovelace right. UIs? And if we have multiple Lovelace UIs, people don't want to be copy-pasting, like, the same change. If you have, like, in all your Lovelace UIs, you probably want to have, like, a card showing the people that are home. Well, if you want to make a change to that card, you don't want to make a change on every view. But now, right. all of a sudden, right. we're going to have shared cards between Lovelace UIs. Right, and like it becomes so much more complicated very fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much the reason that like, there's nothing today yet. Um, I can see us eventually moving to something, but you know, I think the main driver is that somebody has to, you know, do it. And so there's nobody leading that effort right now. Um, you know, people are just focused on other stuff right now. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I mean, there's there's more pressing stuff right but that is uh that is a cool idea though um yeah and you can kind of approach it right now like you can kind of fake it by just having uh tabs right like you can have a tab that you only open on your phone you have a tab you only open on your tablet yeah and you can bookmark these right so you can add them to your bookmark that you open it at a specific tab and then it will work yeah oh yeah there you go that's actually not a bad uh workaround yeah so thank you everybody for you know tweeting at phil and myself Keep it coming. That's it's awesome. All right. Well, I think this has been a big release and a big episode. Paulus, is there anything you want to add before we we wrap things up today? No. I mean, I think I've said it all. I think uh, we've talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's it. And, uh, I I mean, I must say, I enjoyed the podcast. I really enjoyed the last episode. It was really great. And just in general, what you guys are doing is awesome. And keep it up. Thank you very much. Thank you. And and that that goes doubly for you. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing as well. So, without you, we have nothing to do on the weekend. So yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much for making the time. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. If you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest, reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io. That's h a s s podcast.io. The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io.